Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this morning and the, the peace and the freedom by which we're able to gather together. We ask, Lord, that as we would turn to this story in your word, that you would open our hearts and our eyes and our ears to receive from you, uh, to grow more deeply in a knowledge of who you are, but also, Lord, that by your spirit you would shape and transform us to make us more and more into the people that you call us to be. We thank you, Lord, for this time. We just pray a blessing uh, over this people gathered here today, those that will be watching now or later. Lord, would you shape us more and more to be like you, we ask in your name. Amen. Well, last week we began uh, our series on the book of Ruth, which will carry us through the Advent season. Speaking of which, I should probably light our candles. Now, I know these candles don't always stay lit. So if it goes out, it's not a prophetic sign that somehow something strange or unusual is happening, either with me or with Christmas. Christmas will be saved. But I did not trim the wick. This is the peace candle. There's no peace. There's hope. Okay, we're good. Last week, we began our series on Ruth. And just a quick recap to get us back into the story. It opens with uh, a husband and a wife, Elimelech and Naomi. They have two boys, and they leave Israel due to famine. They move to Moab. They spend 10 years there. Uh, the sons get married. We talked about uh, the sons are named Sick and Tired. Uh, sick and Tired and Elimelech all die. And so we're left with three widows. We have Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. And they hear that the famine has ended. Naomi decides to go back to Israel. She tells Orpah and Ruth, you might as well just stay here in Moab. Uh, I can't provide for you. I don't have any more family into which you can marry. Uh, there's really no plan or resources here. You might as well just stay here in Moab. And Orpah says, okay. She decides to stay in Moab. But Ruth decides to follow Naomi. And uh, she chooses Naomi despite uh, Naomi being from Israel. And she says something quite remarkable. She says, your people shall be my people and your God will be my God. And we talked a little bit about how Ruth is a Moabite and the significance of that, that they had a sordid ancestry uh, because of the Moabites came out of an incestuous relationship. And so that sort of plagues their history. Uh, but also their worship as Moabites included child sacrifice, fairly despicable practices. And so Ruth, in saying this, as much as it's a sort of a beautiful statement of, of faith and loyalty to Naomi, I'll go with you, I'm, I'm not going to abandon you, in a deeper sense, she's also saying, I'm willing to give up on my people, and I'm willing to give up these other gods, and I'm going to, I'm going to choose your people, and I'm going to get to know your gods. And that decision has far-reaching spiritual implications for Ruth. And this, we talked about last week, how this tale in many ways is a tale about how despite the brokenness of your own past, just as Ruth has this past that's very broken, despite our own sin or our own failures or your own family history perhaps, that God can still redeem you. 
that despite whatever sort of things have happened, things that you feel guilty for, things you're ashamed of, things that you wish you could forget, God is still at work in your life. He can still redeem you. And we talked about Naomi, how she comes out of this situation and she's bitter and she blames God for what's happened in her life. And she doesn't see yet that God can still be at work despite the sense of bitterness that she feels towards things uh, turning uh, poorly in her life, despite her being widowed, despite her sons being killed, despite all of that, we're going to discover that God is still at work. So that was a little bit of what we talked about last week. Now let's, pick, let's turn back to Ruth chapter 2. And I just want to focus first on these first three verses. Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So we're introduced right away to Boaz. And Boaz is some sort of relative to Naomi's deceased husband. Now, think about this for a second. Naomi said at the end of the last chapter that she was empty, that she had nothing. And yet here, it seems that she has more than she realized. She has a relative. And we're told his name is Boaz. Boaz means worthy or strong. The sense of not just physically, but his character as well, that he's kind of an upright guy uh, in his position, in his strength. He's a man of substance, we might say. Actually, Boaz will use the same term to describe uh, the, the word that's used to describe Boaz, Boaz will use that same term in the feminine to describe Ruth, that she's also a woman of character or a woman of valor. It's the same phrase that's used in Proverbs 31 to describe a woman of substance and virtue, someone who's sort of generous in that way. So we're, we're told about Boaz, but Naomi, for whatever reason, has forgotten about him in all her bitterness and her anger. Uh, but the narrator tells us, actually, Boaz is on the scene, and we're going to set, set him up in a minute. The, the focus of the chapter is on the conversation between Ruth and Boaz, of course. Now, Ruth, the Moabite, look at verse 2, says again, emphasizing she is not from Israel. She's a foreigner. She's an outsider. Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I find favor. Let me go glean. What's she doing? Well, Israel had a specific law uh, to help care for its poor or its foreigners or the orphans in society. And the idea was this, that during harvest time, they were allowed to come and gather some of the standing grain that would still be along the edges of the fields or in the corners of the fields. So the workers would be harvesting their grain. They, had, they couldn't go right up to the edge. They had to leave some. And they couldn't go right to the corners. They had to sort of leave the corners and the edge because there was provision in Israel's law for those who were destitute, poor, unemployed, weak and sickly, orphaned, widowed, could come and glean from the edges. They were allowed to come and do that. And the idea was that uh, they could also kind of go behind the workers. So if the workers were working and they dropped some of the grain as they were harvesting, uh, the, the gleaners could come in behind and pick up the extras. You can read about it in Leviticus 19. It says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap all the way to the edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not pick your vineyard bare or gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. If your apples are falling off the tree, you've got to leave those on the ground. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. 
I am the Lord your God. That's interesting, isn't it? God builds right into Israel society provisions for those who are without. Now, what does that tell us about Ruth? Here they are sitting at home. She decides she's probably still likely grieving her husband. She's likely still grieving her father-in-law. It's her and Naomi alone. They're poor and destitute. They have no prospects. But instead of sitting around, Ruth decides, I'm going to get to work. I'm going to take the initiative to try to provide for myself and for my mother-in-law. Uh, is there a sense, perhaps, that she wants to shield Naomi from the public shame of going out? Maybe. There might be a little bit of that going on. But she decides to go glean. And she says, I'm going to look for someone who will be kind to me. There's all kinds of people running fields. We're not going to assume everyone's just the most upright character ever. Some of you have had good employers. Some of you have had less than great employers, right? Sometimes people are fine to work with. Sometimes they're not. And so she's going to go glean. She's hoping she can find someone who will be kind to her and she can find a good situation to kind of care for herself and Naomi. But yes, the practice of gleaning, that's there to help support the vulnerable, but there's also a sense, and this comes up later in the story, that working out in the field has its own dangers. And so that's why she's like, oh, I hope I find someone who's, you know, who's decent. And Naomi says, go, my daughter. Now, daughter doesn't mean necessarily a sign of biological kinship. It doesn't, it's not necessarily Naomi being warm to Ruth. It can also just mean difference of status, which is, you see this later, Boaz calls her my daughter, right? Because they're different status, socially and economically, right? There's a sense here uh, that, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean warm feelings for Ruth. And some people have actually suggested that Naomi's being a little bit standoffish to Ruth here. Because why on earth? Ruth just said, I hope I find someone who'd be favorable to me. And Ruth knows later when she mentions Boaz that he's a relative. Why isn't Naomi telling her now that she has a relative who would be nice to her? I don't know. We have no idea, right? But later on, she's at least aware of the possibility. Could it be Naomi's just too kind of overwhelmed with everything? It could be that. Or is it a little more not as nice, and she's aware of Ruth's being a Moabite and doesn't really, she's not quite sure about Ruth following her. Could be a little bit of that, too. In the Torah, the Moabites were explicitly forbidden from entering into Israelite society. There's a real sense um, that they can't come and participate in things, and this goes back to Deuteronomy. And there could, be a, there could be this in Naomi that she's just, okay, Ruth, go do whatever you want. Who knows? Either way, Ruth sets out to glean. And then we get this wonderful phrase, it just so happened. It just, just so happened that she ended up to coming to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. It's a bit like saying, well, as luck would have it, she happened upon, you know, Boaz's field. Now, this is more than just sort of joyful happenstance. Because all throughout Ruth, uh, God is actually not specifically mentioned very much in Ruth. And it, it's interesting that he's not. But you see God's providence and his sovereignty at work kind of behind the scenes in sort of how things work out together. 
And that's part of sort of the beauty of what Ruth tells us. And so she just happens to come to the field of the guy who she's later going to marry, right? And there's that sense of, well, God's abandoned us, says Naomi. And yet right away, as Ruth takes the initiative to try to make something of the situation, we see God is at work in sort of the brokenness of their, of their lives. You know, that's kind of encouraging for you and I too, isn't it? That when you feel especially that maybe life's taken a turn, God is still at work in, uh, in those moments. Maybe behind the scenes in ways you don't expect, but God's providence and sovereignty are still good and secure for us, even if we are, are feeling a bit more like Naomi, a bit more bitter, uh, a bit more unsure. Where's God in all of this? doesn't mean God has abandoned you. Isn't that great? So now look at verse 4. Uh, in verse 4, Boaz pulls up in his Land Rover. Boaz came from Bethlehem. He pulls up and he says to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. I just imagine them sort of poking out of the field. And bless you, and bless you, bless you. Ah, Boaz, and falls over, you know. And he said, be with you. And then Boaz gets out and he says to the foreman who's in charge of the reapers, uh, who's that woman? <laughs> so he, he comes, you know, before we get to that point, it's nice that Boaz, we get the sense early on, right, of Boaz's character. Now his name tips us off that he's a decent guy. But what he does is he comes out and actually just blesses his workers. Some of you have been in work situations where you wish, you just wish your boss would show up, period. Maybe you wish if he did show up, he had something nice to say. Uh, but here's Boaz shows up and actually blesses them and actually recognizes that, that God's present with them in their sort of daily work. God's at work as they're just going about doing their harvesting. And they bless him back. And then he, he sort of pulls the supervisor off to the side and says, whose young woman is this? In the biblical world, that's like asking, like, to whose family does she belong? Who's, like, what's her last name, kind of? Where, where is she from? And he, so here he is noticing Ruth. And the foreman sort of chimes in and goes, this is the young Moabite woman. And he kind of fills Boaz in on the details. So clearly the word's gotten around, right, of who, of who this is. It could be she dresses differently, too. Who knows, right? Um, now, there's kind of this interesting moment here where, look at verse 6. It says, the servant who was in charge of the reaper said, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers, which is what she said she'd do. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Now, it can, the, the phrasing in Hebrew is a little bit hard to, to parse out either She's been working really, really hard and only took a short rest, in which case it's like, wow, she is hardworking and persistent, and we've noticed that. It could also mean because she can only get permission to glean from the field by going to the owner, and Boaz just showed up. So it may mean she's come, and come to ask if she can glean. She now can ask because Boaz showed up, and she has waited patiently all morning, uh, unwilling to leave until she gets an answer from Boaz. Either way, it's depicting her persistence and her character, whichever way that gets translated. It's not crucial to the story. Um, but she, she, her hard work, her determination is on display here. And uh, that's seen as pretty, pretty stand up. And then you get this first interaction between Boaz and Ruth. This is verses eight to 13. 
And Boaz starts by extending kindness to her. Again, this is what she was looking for, right? Someone who would extend favor to her. He said, now listen, my daughter. Again, that's just denoting age and status stuff. Don't go glean anywhere in another field. Don't leave this one. Uh, keep an eye on the other young women. Go along with them. They'll kind of show you the ropes. And you stick with them, and we'll make sure you're looked after. Notice he also says, I've told my young men not to touch you. He pulls, so he pulls up, right? He pulls up. The guys are working. The Lord bless you. Bless you, Boaz. Glad you're here, buddy. And he's kind of taking everything in. And then he, see, he pulls off the foreman and goes, who's this woman again? Oh, she's the Moabite. Okay, yeah, she's leaning. Brilliant. Okay. Guys, come here. Come here. Come here. If I catch any of you touching her, <laughs> you leave her alone. Let her glean, right? You just keep your hands off of her. Let her be. She's doing her thing. So he says, Don't, I've told my young men not to touch you. And when you're thirsty, this is part of verse 9, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And then she falls on her face. This is just traditional Middle Eastern context stuff, right? She bows. Why have I found favor in your eyes? Right? This is Ruth's first words to Boaz. And there's the sense of gratitude, uh, Boaz granting her privilege. Not because of her social status, because we've been emphasized over and over again that she's a Moabite. Uh, she's a foreigner, and yet through Naomi, she's able to take on some of these Israelite customs. She's able to do the gleaning. And you know what? God's word makes provision for the foreigner, uh, as well as for the poor, or the orphaned, or the destitute. Ezekiel 47 says, Foreigners residing with Israel can come to be considered native-born Israelites. And they can even begin to be allotted inheritance. And so there's provision in God's word for others to come uh, and join the people of God. That Israel's, from the get-go, more than just an ethnic identity. It's, a, it's also a religious identity, right, of the people who follow Yahweh. So we have this sense early on that Ruth may become a little more fully part of this people. Uh, and Boaz answers her. He's been filled in on the family situation. And he essentially blesses her uh, and prays that she will know God's blessing, God's restitution for all the losses in her life. Uh, if you look at verse 12, he says, uh, you know, basically prays that God will give her a full reward. That might actually indicate, refer to her having children again someday. Um, because she's lost her husband, right? So she, doesn't, she can't have children. And, you know, the irony is Boaz himself, though he doesn't know it yet, is actually going to be the one to answer those prayers uh, when he comes to marry her. Spoiler alert, by the end of the book. If you didn't, I mean, you can go read Ruth. It's not like it's a new story, guys. I'm going to tell you the ending already, right? Uh, he's going to be the one to, through whom God will provide the answers to the prayers. And uh, he'll be the one to actually spread his protective wing, so to speak, over both Ruth and Naomi uh, from verse 12. So what happened is, is Boaz is, is dispelling all of the fears and uncertainties that Ruth and Naomi had at the beginning of the chapter. And he's going to provide the food and the, the provision for them. Another interesting thing to note here. Notice how he says uh, regarding drinking the water. This is in verse 9. When you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Now throughout the Bible, there's a repeated type scene and it's it's the meeting at the well scene and the meeting at the well scene happens several times in the biblical narrative 
You see it uh, in Genesis 29 when Rachel and Jacob meet. You see it in Genesis 24 before that when Rebecca and Isaac meet. And typically what happens is a man travels to a foreign place and meets his future wife at the local well. And she typically draws water for him. And there's sort of a betrothal moment of some kind. But note here, kind of the, the roles are reversed. There's sort of a, a, a reversal of the, how that typically plays out. Instead, Ruth's the outsider. She's come into Israel and now Boaz is the one extending hospitality to her and, and welcoming her and giving her water. She's being welcomed in. And again, this is emphasizing the whole despite her past and her brokenness, she's being drawn into this people. So we have a bit of a reversal of the, of the meeting at the well scene. Now for those of you, think for a moment, where else do you have the meeting at the well scene in the New Testament? It's Jesus and the woman meeting at the well. Yeah. And what's the issue with the woman? It's the multiple wives. It's the betrothal moment again, right? But who just showed up into her life? Jesus. Remember? And, and she goes, he goes to say, well, you've got that other guy back home, but who does she really need? Jesus. It's an intentional, and Jesus has come. He's, in, he's far from, where are they? They're in Samaria. Jesus has left and gone to a foreign country met a woman at the local well she what does he say draw water for me right intentionally invoking the betrothal scenes from the old testament and it and if you've got sort of your biblical imagination going you realize oh my goodness he's telling the samaritans that he's basically the husband that they need that they've been longing for that's what's going that's if you can catch sort of the patterns in the bible are a big part of sort of how to read the bible if you can catch sort of how the biblical patterns are working. And then you can see at a moment like this where it's changed a little bit, you can catch sort of the nuance of what the narrator's uh, trying, to, trying to tell you through the word. So, so that's very cool. The other thing that's interesting is Boaz is giving Ruth the Moabite water. And the big issue between Israel and Moab, Moab, Moabites, Israelites and Moabites, goes back to Deuteronomy 23. In Deuteronomy 23, Israel was wandering through the wilderness on its way to the promised land, and they encountered the Moabites, and the Moabites refused to give them water. And that started the animosity between Israel and Moab at that point. Could it be, could it be, here's the Moabites back in Deuteronomy 23 withholding hospitality, saying no to Israel, and that set up that enmity. But could it be, that despite all of that, again, despite all the brokenness of the past, here's now an Israel, an Israelite offering water back to a Moabite. Despite all that sordid history. Despite all the ways someone in your past may have hurt you, been rude to you, can you perhaps still extend hospitality and welcome and blessing to them? So yes, it's nice Boaz offers her water while she's working yeah but there's more going on here right this is about redeeming this animosity between these peoples and maybe the old wounds between israel and moab can get healed and maybe the old wounds in your own life with people in your life that you have troubles with where there's been wounding where there's been sin and brokenness 
maybe, just maybe, God can bring healing to those places too. Well, not just maybe, of course, but he does. So Boaz extends grace and favor to Ruth. That's great. And Ruth says, you're so kind to comfort me, to speak kindly. The comfort word should trigger something. Comfort, usually in the Bible, shows up after major crisis. Um, right? Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says the Lord. Uh, and she's saying, you finally brought comfort to me after all of my, right? My, my husband died. I can't have kids with him. Everyone, the whole family's messed up. I've just left home, right? Finally, comfort. So then we get to Ruth uh, 2, 14 to 23. It's the last sort of chunk with Ruth and Boaz. So it's lunchtime, and then Boaz uh, finds her at lunch break and says, come eat with us at our table. And so once again, he's welcoming her in. And what does he give her? He gives her bread and wine. And there's this sense of extending table fellowship uh, to Ruth. Once again, he's, he's going over the top in some ways. He's welcoming the outsider. And uh, he's sharing, sharing um, more than he needs to. He's sharing the bare, more than the bare minimum with her. And when she goes back out to glean again, Boaz calls the guys over. Guys, let her glean even among the sheaves. And even as you're going with your bundles, just pull some out and leave them on the ground and let her pick those up too. So not just let her kind of go along the corners, but guys, just give her some extra. Let's just really bless her, right? Give it to her. Just leave it on the ground for her. And don't, don't touch her, whatever you do. You don't touch her. You just let her do her thing, right? You treat her right. Uh, he's going, like I said, sort of beyond the bare minimum to take care of her. And most scholars have, have said the intention here is not romantic. This is not romantic, at least at this point. It's not romantic. That'll come, that comes in the next chapter. But likely he's, he's just concerned for her provision and her safety. So now we get to the end uh, picture in the chapter. So we started with Ruth and Naomi at home. Ruth goes out and then it bookends with Ruth and Naomi at home again. And Ruth's been gleaning all day. She finally brings home. And Naomi asks, uh, where did you glean? And so Ruth relays the story. And Naomi finally, finally, for the first time in the story, starts to realize that her misfortune uh, is not just God's doing. That maybe she doesn't need to be bitter. So there's some, some of that bitterness is starting to leave. She sees this sort of abundant food that Ruth brings home. And, and she starts to catch a glimpse of God's compassion and God's provision and God's kindness that's been extended to them through Boaz. Like Boaz has been, you know, like the vehicle of God's kindness returning to them. She starts to see that uh, through Boaz's care of Ruth. And again, Boaz, in some sense, is also showing us a picture of God's kindness and hospitality towards us. That in the same way that Boaz is welcoming Ruth, who by no you know, virtue of her own should be there, Boaz is welcoming her and going over the top to, to love her and care for her. In the same way, God, that's God's heart for you too. God welcomes you into his family, not on the basis of some great thing you've done or not done, but purely out of his love and his goodness and his provision. He wants to bring you in and welcome you. That's his heart towards you. And then Naomi finally realizes uh, who this Boaz is. It's like, Naomi, come on, you could have said this earlier, but whatever. 
and she says, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. This is her finally giving up some of the lights kind of shining through the cracks here for Naomi, right? The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And notice she said ours, right? Earlier, the, it was maybe a little bit standoffish to Ruth, but now a little bit warmer. Uh, our, he's one of our redeemers. So she's seeing Ruth as part of her family, which is good. Now, this idea of a redeeming kinsman, in Hebrew it's the goel, um, is bound up with this idea of extending kindness. And it's really at the heart of the whole story. The kinsman redeemer had a specific role in Israel's uh, culture. And it had a range of sort of responsibilities to the family. One of those was, was the kinsman redeemer could keep someone in the family out of poverty. And so what they could do is if the husband or the father died, a next of kin like a brother or an uncle, they could step in and redeem uh, the land. They could buy the land and keep the land in the family as opposed to it getting kind of sold off and then the widow and the kids being left sort of destitute with no sort of legacy and no way to provide for themselves. The other way the kinsman redeemer can step in is through the role of marriage. And they can actually, if the husband died and the wife is childless, uh, and all of their land and possessions don't have an heir to inherit, uh, the widow can marry the husband's kinsman redeemer. And the child that they would have together wouldn't be considered the kinsman redeemer's child, it would actually be considered the dead husband's heir uh, and would carry on that family line. And it keeps uh, the wealth properly distributed and keeps the land sort of properly distributed and keeps things sort of going well within the family line. That's the idea. And so that redeemer concept is really crucial to the rest of Ruth, as we'll see in the next two weeks, because Ruth's going to ask, uh, next week, if Boaz will actually step into that role as kinsman redeemer for her. And then verse 23 ends with a few weeks or even a few months going by, the sense that Ruth gleans daily for her and Naomi from Boaz's fields. It tells us again something about Ruth sort of keeping things going. Um, despite the developing relationship with Boaz, she doesn't abandon Naomi, which is great. She doesn't just leave her mother-in-law. Uh, and yet she's also not fully brought into Boaz's household either, even though he's extended that kindness to her. And so there's this idea that when the season ends, once the, the harvests are finished, uh, they'll be on their own again. And that's what prompts them in the next chapter, in the next scene, to sort of hatch the plot to kind of speed this thing along. Like, we're going we're gonna to do this kinsman redeemer thing. Ruth and Naomi are like, we've got we to gotta make this happen, right? So that's chapter two. And I just want to wrap it up by just talking about a couple, three implications for us from the text. And we've talked about this a little bit as we go. Um, but just to sort of drive the point home again, three points. The first, again, is that God is at work in unexpected ways. Sometimes God's ways are not obvious. Sometimes you feel like you've got to go glean for a bit. And it doesn't feel like God is just showing up the way you would expect but God is at work in not just the big and extraordinary ways. God is at work in the ordinary, unassuming ways as well. In the chance meeting of this woman and this guy in a field, right? God is at work in the background of your story, bringing his purposes to bear in your life. 
I was thinking of a passage like Philippians 1, verse 6, right? It says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That God has started something good in your life. He's not about to abandon you. And even though there may be moments, like I said, that feel you've been abandoned by God, uh, it doesn't mean he's utterly left you or forsaken you. And you can choose to either carry on a sort of bitterness like Naomi or to, to let that go and choose, like Ruth, uh, to carry on as best as you can with what you've been given and trust that God will be at work in, in the brokenness and in, the, in that difficulty. And which brings me to the second point, is that uh, we can choose life and reject bitterness. I was thinking of uh, when Anita shared a couple of weeks ago, Anita Pierce, she talked about uh, shaking off the snakes, right, and rejecting the poison. Uh, choose, choose life. Uh, you can choose to sort of stay at home like Naomi, uh, or you can choose to get gleaning like Ruth, so to speak. Colossians 3.23 says this, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So reject bitterness, and with your life, choose to live it for the Lord. Choose that whatever you set your hand to tomorrow morning when you get up, that that is work that you are doing for Jesus. And with that in mind, do it with excellence and diligence, uh, with a love for him and a love for others, even if what you have in front of you as a family or in your marriage or whatever you might have at work is difficult, choose as best as you can to pursue living for God with excellence in what you've been given. And the third thing I want to, to point to uh, comes from Boaz, and that is to share your table. Choose, and this is a very Christmassy sort of message, choose to extend hospitality and kindness and grace perhaps even to the outsider, as Boaz does to Ruth. Uh, through them, we get this picture, not just of Boaz's heart uh, towards someone who's not doing well, but we get this picture of God's heart for a broken world that he wants to come and bring his comfort and his joy and his life. And he's done that at Christmas by sending Jesus, his only son. That is the greatest moment of God sharing his table hospitality with us. And what is Jesus known for, after all? They blame him for ble being a glutton and a drunkard because he spends too much time eating and drinking with people that uh, shouldn't, he shouldn't be associating with, right? When was the last time you as a Christian were accused of eating and drinking with the wrong people, you know? It is what Jesus does. He welcomes people who are typically overlooked and welcomes them into his embracing love uh, as a picture of God's love. So it doesn't mean he doesn't call them out in their sin. It doesn't mean he ignores truth. But Jesus operates with truth and grace. And he goes about seeking and saving the lost. Right? What does he say? I came as a physician to those that are sick, not to those that, need, uh, to those that are already healed. I came to bring life to the, those that are broken. And that's in some ways what Boaz does here, too. He extends the table, uh, maybe in some ways overcoming the old animosities that exist between his peoples, but he's opening his life, his table, up to Ruth. And in so many ways, uh, we as a church can do the same with those around us. 
both individually as families, as individuals caring for those around us, but also as a church in Dryden, caring for those uh, that are in need. That's what Christmas and Advent in some ways are all about. You know, it's interesting. I'm going to end with this. Why would Boaz extend this sort of life to Ruth? Why, why does he have that in him to try to welcome a foreigner? Well, if you, if you go back and you follow the genealogy at the end of Ruth, uh, Boaz's mom, I'm going to go there so I don't mess this up. <laughs> Boaz's mom, from what I remember, is Rahab. Now, Rahab, this goes back to Joshua. Rahab was a foreigner who was rescued, who came into Israel, who chose Yahweh, who was a prostitute, and put her old life behind her and became part of the people of God. And could it be that Boaz, who saw in his mom the brokenness of a previous life redeemed by God for Israel, brought into this new people, realizes that he can extend kindness and hospitality to another outsider and welcome her into this family as well. I think so. I think that's a little bit of what's going on there. He's seen it in his own life. He's seen how God can transform someone, and he's extending that uh, to Ruth. Why don't you stand with me, and let's pray to that end, that God would do this sort of work in our hearts and lives. Jesus, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you uh, for this story which reveals so much of your heart, of your kindness, and your love, and your hospitality towards us uh, through Boaz and through Ruth. It's a love story, not just romantic love, but also of your provision and compassion and generosity. Jesus, in so many ways, we need to hear this so we can have a right picture of you in our hearts. Of, of what you are like and what your character is, that you care for us, uh, that we were once foreigners and outsiders, and yet we have been brought in through the salvation that you won at the cross, Jesus. First uh, Peter says, once we were not a people, but now we have become a people. Uh, and we see that in Ruth becoming part of Israel. We see that also, Jesus, in the life and love that you extend to us, that we can be part of your people, your new covenant family. Lord, in, in many ways, uh, we fall short of that. We're well aware of our own brokenness and sinfulness. But Jesus, our hearts, we just say today again, our hearts are to live for you. We want to strive to follow you well. And so, uh, Lord, help us to walk with excellence in the things that you've put before us. Help us, Lord, to extend hospitality and grace to those around us to share the table. And God, perhaps most of all, when we feel that there is no hope, that things feel hopeless, uh, when it feels there is no peace and we are restless, Jesus, remind us this Advent season that you are still at work in our lives, sometimes in dramatic ways, sometimes behind the scenes, but in all ways, uh, through your goodness and your grace, working things out according to your plans and purposes. So Jesus, this morning, we just give you the things in our hearts that are uh, just bogging us down, the things that are controlling us, the things we're anxious about, worried about. Lord, we give you um, the places in our hearts where we are battling with sin, and we ask that you would come while we repent today, Lord. Would you come and 
clean that area and make it yours. Lord, where as a community uh, we want to seek to follow you, would you help us to do that well this season? Uh, but not just this season, all seasons, Lord. Uh, to live out your character and your grace, to extend that uh, to our neighbors. And maybe Boaz is a good example of this for us, extending your hospitality and your love to people around him. Lord, would we do that same uh, sort of thing with our own neighbors, uh, knowing, Jesus, that's what you did when you came and lived among us. Lord, in all these ways, we can't do it without the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask, Lord, that you would come fill us afresh today with your love and with your power. Help us to live for you. Uh, help us to walk with you, uh, to love you, to love those around us. Uh, in all these things, we pray for your strength and your grace. We say today we love you. And as we go from this place, would you send us out, Lord, in your name and with your power, uh, with your love. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, before you go, uh, speak the benediction over you. Children of God who are loved and forgiven through our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, may you work well and with excellence at what he has given you to do. May you uh, trust in the goodness and grace of God who's at work uh, in all the circumstances of your lives. And may you, like Jesus, extend the grace and the welcome of God to those around you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. Amen.